Yeah, well, you know, back in the Cold War days, Saudi Arabia was um, a U.S. and West-backed kingdom, anti-communist to the core. That is completely different from the Saudi Arabia that we see today. The Saudis will work with any country in the world that can help the Saudis with Vision 2030. And the Saudis are, you know, like other Arab states, they've taken stock of the extent to which... Um, as I said on your previous show, the world's center of geoeconomic gravity has shifted from the West toward China and the rest of Asia. And so it's been very, the Saudis have been very pragmatic in terms of conducting much more of a non-aligned foreign policy where they don't want to be with one block against another block. They want to try to work with as many blocks as possible. Hello, everyone. I'm Rania Kalik, and this is Dispatches. The emergence of multipolarity has meant the expansion of BRICS. And four of the new BRICS countries, Egypt, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE, are in the Middle East. What does this mean for the region? For multipolarity? For the Cold War between the US and China? The future of the Saudi-Iran rivalry? Can Saudi Arabia be trusted? How might it impact Israel? What's Washington's reaction? And what does it mean for the future of US policy in the Middle East? To discuss this and other regional developments, I'm joined by Giorgio Cafiero, the CEO of Gulf State Analytics, a Washington, D.C.-based geopolitical risk consultancy. But before we jump into it, this is just the first half of this episode. The second half is available for Breakthrough News members only. You can become a member at patreon.com slash Breakthrough News. And as always, be sure to hit the subscribe button and the bell so you get a notification whenever we post new content. And if you appreciate this show, you can also donate below on YouTube. Giorgio, welcome back to the show. Good to be with you. It's great to have you back on and it's uh, good timing uh, since we had our last episode where we went pretty into depth about the various uh, regional shifts when it comes to particularly the Gulf region across the Middle East. Um, we talked a lot in that episode, which I'll link to in the description for those who missed it. We talked a lot in that episode about multipolarity. That was like an issue that kept coming up. And we mostly focused on the various Gulf countries and their relationships with China and Russia versus the US. And of course, since that episode, there's been a pretty dramatic development, I think, which is that BRICS has expanded. We've got six new countries are now going to be a part of BRICS beginning in January of 2024. And four of those six countries are in the Middle East region. We've got the Emirates, the Saudis, the Egyptians, and the Iranians all joining BRICS. So let's just start from right there. What is the overall significance of this for the Middle East? Well, this is definitely a very unique time in history as we're witnessing the expansion of BRICS. As you mentioned, there are these four countries in the Middle East, Iran, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Egypt that received invitations. Uh, I think this is a very big deal. Um, symbolically, this says a lot about these countries and the ways in which they're looking east and looking toward the global south in a more multipolar world that becomes less West-centric with every single day that passes. I think this is important from the standpoint of these countries gaining more maneuverability. And um, in the case of the 
three Arab countries in this group, uh, gaining more autonomy from Washington and other Western capitals against the backdrop of their relationships with Beijing and Moscow deepening over the years. Um, to be sure, uh, countries like the UAE and Saudi Arabia began looking east uh, from a geoeconomic standpoint many years ago with the rise of China, an Asian giant that's been so thirsty for oil and gas from the Gulf region. Uh, these countries a long time ago realized that it was in their economic interests to sort of make a pivot toward China and other Asian powerhouses such as India, Japan, Singapore, South Korea, so on and so forth. So I think these countries receiving invitations to BRICS, and by the way, the U UAE has actually already accepted the invitation. I think probably the other um, Arab states, Saudi Arabia and Egypt will too. Um, this, I don't think, is going to necessarily lead to a fundamental transformation of their relationships with the BRICS countries. I think it sort of just will kind of constitute an acceleration of a trend that was already in motion beginning years ago. I think it's very logical for uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, for example, to um, want to join this block to put things into perspective with some numbers. The Among the five existing BRICS members, obviously being Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, there are 3.2 billion people in these five countries, making up 40% of the global population. None of these countries currently exist in the G7, yet um, this constitutes one-third of global GDP, roughly. And the following statistic, I think, is really important to note. In the year 2020, the G7 and the five BRICS countries Collectively, um, each G7 and BRICS both made up 30% of uh, the share of global GDP. Today, in 2023, that figure for the G7 has gone down to 29%. And for br the BRICS block, it went up to 33%. So we see that in terms of the share of global GDP, BRICS is increasing in importance and G7 is decreasing. It's totally rational for countries like Saudi Arabia and the UAE to um, make adjustments in a world that's becoming much more multipolar. These are countries that want to have increasingly non-aligned foreign policies. They're not trying to burn bridges with the West but they see all the technological innovation in Asia. They see expanding markets in Asia, and they're very determined to capitalize on new opportunities in Asia and also throughout the global South. And I think it's within this context that we need to understand Saudi Arabia and the UAE's decision to enter uh, the bloc. For Iran, the picture is a little bit different. Unlike Saudi Arabia and the UAE, Iran has obviously maintained a hostile relationship with the U.S. and the West for decades. Um, the government of Iran has long been determined to challenge U.S. dominance in the world and challenge U.S. hegemony. 
And especially with the current leadership in Iran, uh, with President Ibrahim Raisi at the helm, Iran is increasingly determined to work with China and Russia to restructure the global order in a way that makes the United States a much uh, less powerful country. And for Iran, the entry into BRICS is important to the government's efforts to counter all the Western pressure, the U.S. sanctions and so forth. The extent to which Iran joining BRICS can achieve that objective, I think, remains to be seen. Even with Iran in BRICS, the U.S. economic sanctions are still going to impose a tremendous amount of pain and continue to cripple the Iranian economy. But again, I think the thinking in Tehran is that taking this step will give Iran a bit more breathing room. Those are all really, really important points. And since you mentioned uh, both Iran and Saudi Arabia here, I'm curious, do you think that these two countries being in an economic bloc led by China and Russia could perhaps lead to even more of a reduction in tensions um, and maybe even act as a kind of like mediating force against future conflicts? It's a very good question. Uh, before answering that, I think it's also important to point out that we should not only look at BRICS, but also uh, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, or SCO. Uh, recently, Iran became a full member of this institution, and Saudi Arabia, along with some other Arab states, have a dialogue partner status in the SCO. So it's a good question, both within the context of Iran and Saudi Arabia integrating into BRICS as well as the SCO. What can these blocks, these organizations do to sort of uh, facilitate a better relationship between Iran and Saudi Arabia? I think it certainly could not hurt. Um, I'm not sure necessarily the extent to which um, membership or movements toward membership in both of these blocks will impact the relationship between Iran and Saudi Arabia. The tension and the suspicions that Iran and Saudi Arabia have of each other are probably not going to go away by virtue of uh, the two countries integrating into BRICS and SCO. Um, Iran's main uh, suspicions of Saudi Arabia have mostly to do with the kingdom's relationship with the United States. From Iran's perspective, the Saudis have made the Gulf a much less secure region by bringing in the U.S. military. Saudi Arabia looks at Iran's ties with many non-state actors, anti-status quo groups in the Arab world, and this has made the Saudis feel very insecure for many, many years. Again, those dynamics I don't think are going to go away because of Iran and Saudi Arabia moving toward um, membership in SCO and BRICS. But at the same time, we should keep in mind that both Iran and Saudi Arabia care a lot about their relationships with China. China is a rising power and neither Iran nor Saudi Arabia would like to do anything that upsets China or humiliates China. As we discussed on your show a few months ago, the normalization deal that Saudi Arabia and Iran signed on March 10 was signed in Beijing. The Chinese played a role in facilitating that renormalization deal. And there's a lot of um, 
there would be a lot for China to lose if the uh, detente would fall apart and Iran and Saudi Arabia would return to hostilities. It would mark a big blow to the image of Chinese diplomacy in the Middle East. And within that context, I think there's extra incentive for Saudi Arabia and Iran to try to continue to warm relations. Uh, the two countries have definitely not uh, reached some sort of full-scale rapprochement, but there is this detente that remains on track. We saw earlier this month that the, um, the Saudis had an ambassador go back to Tehran. Uh, likewise, Iran had an ambassador return to Riyadh. Also in August, Iran's uh, top diplomat came to Jeddah and met with Crown Prince and Prime Minister Mohammed bin Salman, and he invited MBS to Tehran. Um, so these are all indicators that the two countries are definitely uh, seeking to continue to ease the friction and to maintain dialogue and continue to build on the agreement that was signed in Beijing a little more than six months ago. And yeah, uh, back to your question, I, I think um, with Iran in SCO and uh, Saudi Arabia having the dialogue partner status in that organization, as well as these two countries receiving invitations to BRICS, I think that can certainly bode well for uh, an easing of friction between Tehran and Riyadh. And then, of course, you know, uh, talking to people in the region who are very much, you know, in the sort of resistance axis camp, as it's called, uh, this particular group of people in the Middle East, they remain quite suspicious and very cautious when it comes to the involvement of Saudi Arabia in organizations like BRICS uh, and Saudi Arabia's growing ties with China and Russia as well. They see it as I often hear people say it's a potential poison pill given Saudi Arabia's historic role in the region um, in the eyes of, you know, the resistance axis supporters. And then, of course, Saudi Arabia has continued very close relationship with the U.S. So I'm curious, do you think that uh, they are correct to have this suspicion? Yeah, I mean, this speaks to sort of a larger issue that's going to be important to look at as BRICS expands and this has to do with the fact that among current members in BRICS and those that were invited last month, there are some real serious divisions. You have uh, Russia, China, and Iran, which are adversaries of the United States. They're very determined to challenge U.S. dominance, to counter U.S. foreign policy interests and agendas. Then you have countries like India, Brazil, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, UAE, which certainly have some tensions with Washington. But at the end of the day, these countries definitely do not have hostile relationships with the U.S. They actually work very closely with Washington and, and other Western capitals in many different ways. So the ambitions and the aspirations and sort of the attitudes of different countries in BRICS are very different and how these divisions and sort of conflicts of interest will play out as BRICS expands will probably take a bit more time to fully understand. But um, narrowing in on the Middle East and looking at the um, role of Saudi Arabia, 
Yeah, it's certainly the case that Saudi Arabia is going to continue to work very closely with the United States uh, for all intents and purposes. Uh, you know, there's no reason to argue that Saudi Arabia is on the verge of walking away from its partnership with the United States. The kingdom definitely depends on America for its security. And this is obviously a dynamic that's going to, as I mentioned earlier, this is a dynamic that's going to continue creating uh, friction between Iran and Saudi Arabia. These two countries are going to look at the Middle East very, very differently and also different non-state actors in the region that are close to Iran are going to continue to view Saudi Arabia as a sort of a counter-revolutionary, a reactionary player in the region. Um, but what's interesting about BRICS, though, is that unlike the G7, countries in BRICS are not coming together because they have the same sort of governance system or sort of ideological common ground. When you look at the countries currently in BRICS and those that recently got invited, I mean, they have very different systems of government. The nature of these governments are, are very different. Uh, Ideologically, there are huge differences between, say, Brazil and Russia or Saudi Arabia and China or Iran. They're coming together because they're trying to restructure the global balance in a way that makes them less dependent on the U.S. and gives them more autonomy from sort of a U.S.-led financial order. They think it's in their interest to establish these new networks in a world that's becoming much, much more multipolar. And maybe we can get into this a bit later, but I really think the invasion, the Russian invasion of Ukraine last year, and not so much anything that's happened on the ground in Ukraine, but the US and Europe's reaction to that invasion with the sanctions and the effort to do everything possible to squeeze Russia as, as much as possible um, has been one of the main factors that sort of accelerated this trend that I think really manifested last month with um, these six countries receiving invitations to join BRICS. Now that's a really interesting observation. Um... And I know that, for example, Egypt, I mean, one of the region, reasons Egypt was uh, looking forward to perhaps being in BRICS is because it's like a lifeline for them in some ways, because the war in Ukraine impacted uh, Egypt's currency valuation. It like the currency devalued because of the issue with wheat that was caused by the war in Ukraine. Um, so, I mean, it had so many, the war in Ukraine had so many ripple effects. The, the sanctions, particularly on Russia, has have had so many ripple effects across particularly the third world. Uh, and I think that's part of why you do see countries turning increasingly towards anything <laughs> that can help them. And in this case, you know, it's the fact that you have this rising power called China, which raises the issue of, you know, Giorgio, what does this all say about the, this, this expansion of BRICS, particularly into the Middle East, with, the GC, with at least two GCC states involved, what does that say about the shifts to, towards this more multipolar order? And, and do you think that in many ways, like, are we seeing the impact of the rise of China? Is this like an outcome of the rise of China uh, in the Middle East? Yeah, you know, for many years, countries in the GCC and elsewhere in the Arab region have 
been increasingly questioning the wisdom of being so dependent on the United States. I, my personal opinion, I think this really brings us back to the 1990s when the so-called uh, peace process between um, the Israelis and Palestinians was going on. Obviously, you and I know that when we say peace process, we have to really put that in, in quotes. But nonetheless, Arab states saw that the U.S. completely failed to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict during the Clinton years. Then when George W. Bush was president, there was the invasion of Iraq that did so much to destabilize the Middle East. And under Obama, many Arab states were disturbed by his reaction to the Arab Spring uprisings, the Obama administration's handling of the conflict in Syria. There was the whole red lines fiasco in 2013 that got them to think that the United States doesn't really stand by its word. Um, and under Donald Trump, there were many, um, there were a handful of developments that contributed to their um, sense that the U.S. could not be counted on as a responsible security guarantor. There were um, attacks against Saudi energy infrastructure in September 2019. The U.S. didn't really respond to that in a way that the Gulf countries wanted. And then under Biden, we saw the um, very botched withdrawal from Afghanistan. So my point is administration after administration, there have been many blunders uh, in U.S. foreign policy that have resulted in um, the Gulf Arab countries believing that it's in their interest to become a lot less dependent on the United States. Probably China is the most important player that from their perspective in terms of uh, gaining greater autonomy, it's difficult to exaggerate how important China is to countries like the UAE and Saudi Arabia that wants to um, be a lot less dependent on Washington moving forward. There's other countries that factor into this look east orientation as well. Uh, Russia and India, they are, the Arab countries are, you know, obviously adjusting to some really significant shifts in the international landscape that are really impossible to ignore when you look at the economic rise of China and other countries in BRICS. None of this is to say that these countries want to completely burn bridges with the United States. Um, if we're being honest, I don't think anyone in the GCC thinks that China is on the verge of replacing the U.S. as a security guarantor for any of the Gulf Arab monarchies. I think probably the U.S. will continue playing that role for the foreseeable future. So I don't want to overstate any of this. But I think the main point is that these countries want to continue to have very close relations with the U.S., but also conduct increasingly non-aligned foreign policies. They don't think that their close ties to Washington should prevent them from deepening relationships with China and other Asian countries. They don't think that they completely reject this notion that they have to pick between the East and the West within the framework of this so-called new Cold War. They see international relations as very much a positive sum game. They think they can move closer to the U.S. and China at the same time and get all the benefits that they can from deeper relations with Washington and also benefit from deeper 
relations with Beijing at the same time. I think it's here in Washington and maybe in some capitals in Western Europe where everything is seen as a zero sum game. But again, that is not the thinking in the Gulf. And since you brought up Washington and you are there and that you are based there and you're taught, you're speaking to me from there. Um, I've only maybe seen just various tweets by think tankers uh, about BRICS. Most of them have been either, it's actually been a mix of either doomsday, China's trying to take over the world, which is more of like the right wing take, or it's been very dismissive. Like, ah, this doesn't mean anything. It's not important. It's, I've seen those two takes, but as far as actually like in DC, the response from officials, the response from the US government, what has been the reaction if any, to this expansion of BRICS? Well, many policymakers in Washington will come out with statements that say, oh, all of these countries in the GCC and the Middle East are independent sovereign nation states, and they have the right to enter into any kind of organization or economic bloc that they want. This isn't something Washington is trying to prevent. That's what gets said in a lot of many of the official statements, but it's no secret that, of course, policymakers in the U.S. are disturbed to see uh, U.S. partners and U.S. allies in the Middle East uh, moving into integrating into the SCO or receiving invitations uh, to BRICS. The foreign policy establishment here in Washington is very troubled by the extent to which Russia and China have gained various degrees of influence in a number of Arab countries that have been backed by the West for many decades. You'll hear many pundits in Washington make the argument that because the U.S. is the security guarantor for the UAE and for Saudi Arabia, it's absolutely unacceptable for these countries to forge the types of relationships with China and Russia that they have been forging for a number of years. And in fact, at the beginning of this month, US, UK and EU officials went into the UAE to um, have some very frank discussions with Emirati officials about certain aspects of the UAE's trade relationship with Russia. The Western uh, delegations, the Western officials who went to the UAE were uh, raising concerns about certain um, so-called dual-use technologies, meaning technologies that can be used for civilian as well as military purposes that uh, you have in UAE-Russia trade. Ultimately, the concern being that Emirati-Russian trade was helping, has been helping the Russian military in Ukraine. So again, um, the timing is key. This, um, these Western officials went to the UAE in early September, and it was on August 24 when uh, UAE received the invitation to BRICS. So, I mean, there's really a lot to, to take away from that. But yeah, I mean, to answer your question, Washington sees this as a very negative development. The idea of Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and UAE uh, moving into BRICS. And then, you know, I wanted to, since we're we're talking about Saudi Arabia and China, um, in a piece that you wrote on Saudi-China relations, you say that, and I'm quoting you here, the GCC oil and gas flows have been moving east far more than west. Saudi Arabia sees itself integrating into Asia in terms of trade, 
commerce, energy deals, and investment, which is what you're basically alluding to here. But can you elaborate on why this is happening? And are there any particular things that the Biden administration is doing to push back against it? Great question. And um, I'm really glad we're having this uh, discussion today because, you know, the G20 uh, had its summit in India earlier this month. Um, it wrapped up very recently. And one of the important developments that came out of the G20 summit was the unveiling of a um, sort of a project linking India to the Middle East in Europe. This um, is uh, a, an initiative that consists of India, UAE, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Israel, and the handful of European countries. Um, this is about sort of a, a corridor linking these countries through energy infrastructure, subsea cables. And um, I think the objective on the part of Washington here is to challenge China's Belt and Road Initiative mm -hmm. and to try to sort of increase the importance of the U.S. and to increase the U.S. role in the development of the Middle East and to try to uh, work with India and these Middle Eastern countries and European allies to sort of push back against China's geoeconomic ascendancy in the Middle East. And um, I think, again, bringing us back to a, a point I was making a few minutes ago, I think probably from Saudi Arabia and the UAE's perspective, this is not so much about them working with Washington to counter China, but about them trying to simultaneously expand networks uh, with Eastern countries as well as Western countries all at the same time and to try to play more and more of a centralized role in an increasingly multipolar world. And it's very complicated what's going on, but I think clearly the Gulf Arab states want to sort of capitalize on everything that China has to offer with the Belt and Road Initiative while, while also um, being very receptive to projects that are being unveiled by the Western countries as well as India, too. Um, but to go, go back to your question a little bit about the Saudi um, view that its future is really going to be based on its economic and commercial integration into Asia. I mean, when, and also the fact that it's oil exports have been moving east and not west. I mean, this is something that really started quite a while ago. I mean, if we were having this conversation in the 2000s, we'd be saying the same thing. Um, China has become so critical to Saudi Arabia's economy and to the economy of other oil and gas exporting countries in the GCC. These countries have had no choice but to make this geoeconomic pivot to the east. This also has taken place against the backdrop of the U.S. becoming energy independent. So, I mean, the writing was on the wall a long time ago. And now what we're seeing increasingly so is that Saudi Arabia's economic relationship with China is moving beyond just oil when it comes to tech, when it comes to tourism, logistics, so on and so forth. The Saudis 
think that their relationships with China and their networks in China are really the future. And as Saudi Arabia is moving ahead with Vision 2030, which is um, the kingdom's sort of grandiose economic diversification agenda, um, China has such an important role to play. And there are really a lot of synergies between the Belt and Road Initiative and Vision 2030. Right now, the with, with every day that passes, the Saudis and the Chinese are seeing um, this bilateral relationship between Riyadh and Beijing is increasingly important to both countries. Well, in another sense, you know, I'm curious if there's a connection between all of these shifts that you just discussed, or the balancing act, I suppose, that Saudi Arabia and other states close to the U.S. are trying to play, and the Biden administration's attempts to force or push for this Saudi-Israel normalization deal. Yeah, there is really an obsession on the part of U.S. policymakers with expanding the Abraham Accords. It's really at a point where uh, the Abraham Accords and efforts to widen the scope of these accords is really at the heart of U.S. strategy in the Middle East these days. The Biden team has put so much diplomatic energy into trying to bring Saudi Arabia into a normalization agreement with Israel. It hasn't worked, and I'll eat my words if I'm wrong, but I, I really don't think <laughs> that by the time Biden leaves the White House, you're going to have uh, Saudi Arabia in a normalization agreement with Israel. I think these efforts will prove futile. Having said all of that, there is an unofficial relationship between Saudi Arabia and Israel. There's been a tacit partnership between these two countries that has existed for decades. And I think, um, although, as I said, I don't believe that you're going to see Saudi Arabia formalize diplomatic relations with Israel. I think you're going to see Saudi Arabia and Israel taking many steps towards sort of a de facto normalization. And I think the Biden administration will, of course, be trying to do whatever it can to advance that. Um, an example was when the Saudis decided to permit Israeli flights to transit the kingdom's airspace last year. That's definitely an example of the Saudis sort of taking a mini step toward um, a, a normalization of sorts with Israel. Um, but, you know, the Palestinian issue still matters a lot in the Arab world. And this is not only true to Arab elites and government officials, but also to many on the so-called Arab streets. And even though Saudi Arabia is not a democracy, it is a country that has its own domestic politics. And the leadership in Riyadh, of course, has to take into account public opinion. And this, I think, is very relevant to why Saudi Arabia has not joined the Abraham Accords yet. Also, Saudi Arabia plays a very important role as um you know, with the king of Saudi Arabia officially being the custodian of the two holy mosques. So opinion throughout the wider Arab and Islamic world on the question of Palestine is also relevant to Saudi thinking. Um, but nonetheless, uh, policymakers in Washington don't really seem to care at all about any of this. And the effort is just to do anything possible to bring 
uh, Saudi Arabia into the Abraham Accords and bringing us back to China. I think it's definitely the case that China-related issues are very relevant to these efforts. The thinking in Washington, the thinking in the White House, is that if the U.S. could bring Saudi Arabia to normalize with Israel and there would be agreements on other issues, perhaps pertaining to U.S. arms sales to Saudi Arabia, U.S. defense commitments to the kingdom, all of this could serve to sort of counter the rise of China in the Middle East. And this could, from the perspective of officials in Washington, ideally result in some space being put between China and Saudi Arabia. I think this is very wishful thinking. And I think it's a huge waste of energy to spend all of this time and resources into trying to bring this about. I think this is more... Um, fantasy foreign policy thinking, but it is what we have from the Biden administration. Right. Um, and then I wanted to, since we're talking about Israel, I wanted to ask you about uh, China's relationship with Israel. How does China's role as this, you know, U.S. adversary, whether it wants to be or not, that's how the U.S. sees it, uh, as this U.S. adversary, and at the same time, you know, a country that's quite close to Iran, how does that impact China's relationship with Israel, uh, which does exist. China and Israel do have, I mean, China has a relationship with everybody, really. Um, but yeah, how do these, these sort of relationships and the dynamics of all of that impact China's relationship with Israel? And moreover, what is the historical relationship between China and Israel? Yeah, Chinese-Israeli relations are very complicated. There's there are many layers to this relationship and uh, ties between uh, Beijing and Tel Aviv have evolved over the decades. Uh, going back to uh, 1949, when there was the revolution in China, this was, of course, only one year after the founding of Israel. I think that's a good starting point. When uh, Chairman Mao was at the helm China's foreign policy in the Middle East was very ideological. China's Middle East foreign policy during those years uh, was very much focused on revolutionary objectives. Within this context, the Arab countries that China got along with and was closest to were the left-wing socialist, so-called radical Arab states we're talking about Nasser's Egypt, the Marxist regime in South Yemen, Iraq, Syria, Algeria, Gaddafi's Libya, and the conservative monarchies on the Arabian Peninsula had hostile relationships with China. From Mao's perspective, those countries were just puppets of the West and agents of Western imperialism and um for example, in the 1960s and 1970s in the Sultanate of Oman, which was very much backed by the West and backed by um, the Shah of Iran, there was a Marxist insurgency that took place in um, Dofar, the southern part of Oman. Uh, the Omani state eventually triumphed and the Marxist insurgents failed to uh, overthrow the Sultanate. But nonetheless, during those years, China, along with um, 
North Korea and some other communist powers were giving support to the Marxist insurgents in Oman. Uh, just saying that to sort of illustrate the kind of tension that existed between Mao's government and the um, conservative monarchies of the Arabian Peninsula. And also within this context, China saw Israel as a puppet of the United States, an agent of Western imperialism. China's revolutionary foreign policy was very much committed to national liberation struggles in the Arab world, and the Palestinian struggle was an important one. Yeah. However, by go ahead. No, no, I was just, I was like, oh, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. I was just agreeing with what you were saying, yeah. and also, <laughs> yeah, that's how that happened. But, yeah, definitely. <laughs> but by the late 1970s, though, China started opening up economically, and the Chinese began approaching the Middle East in ways that were much more pragmatic and a lot less ideological. China became very thirsty for Gulf oil. And the thinking was, okay, let's abandon this sort of uh, revolutionary ideological approach to the region. These conservative monarchies on the Arabian Peninsula have oil that we desperately need right now. Let's find pragmatic ways to work with them. They started seeing Israel as sort of an important um, technological hub in the Middle East, a very innovative country, a very prosperous nation, and the Chinese thought it was in their interests to start working with the Israelis. And by 1992, China and Israel established uh, formal diplomatic relations with, the, um, you know, uh, China had its embassy in, in Tel Aviv, Israel had an embassy in Beijing. And ever since then, Chinese-Israeli economic relations have flourished. And this is across so many different sectors, infrastructure, education, uh, ports, logistics, transportation, pharmaceuticals, so on and so forth. It's a very um, multi-layered economic uh, relationship. And the Chinese government has definitely encouraged um, Chinese companies to invest in Israeli companies, to buy Israeli companies, to take part in very lucrative projects in Israel. And really, since Netanyahu returned to his position as prime minister, we've seen um, this relationship deepen. Israel is a part of the Belt and Road Initiative. From China's perspective, Israel is a very technologically advanced country in the Eastern Mediterranean. And it's seen as playing an important role in the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, Now, while all of that's going on, there are some factors that will place some serious limits on this relationship. In my opinion, there are three main points to keep in mind. One, China is never going to have a foreign policy like the U.S.'s foreign policy in the sense that it's never going to just sort of automatically side with Israel against Israel's adversaries in the region. China has a very balanced approach to the Middle East. Um, You know, countries like Iran and Syria, for example, are on very good terms with China. They're very close to China. And Beijing is not going to back up Israel in its belligerent behavior throughout the region. Um, Secondly, 
there is a lot of U.S. pressure on Israel to sort of cool its ties with China. The U.S. Uh, has been very concerned, actually, about the extent to which Israel has moved close to China and the presence of Chinese companies in Israel is something that Washington is very concerned about. Uh, there are concerns that the Chinese could engage in espionage against the U.S. Navy from Israel. And the U.S. has told Israel that it's very serious about these concerns. And um, at the same time, Israel has its own concerns about its relationship with China the Israelis have been worried that technology transfers to China could undermine Israel's national security, um, bringing us back to these uh, dual-use technologies that have military dimensions to them. The fear is that through China's relationship with Iran, some of Israel's military technology could possibly end up in the hands of the Iranians.